because there's so much good going on in the world today. It's like everywhere you look, somebody's helping out somebody or, or somebody is doing something really good. And, and there's also bad news in the world, and that's why we go to Facebook. But there's also really good things to see in the world too. And there's, there's a magazine that Starbucks started, and it's called Good Magazine. And I wanted to have Good Magazine up on the uh, PowerPoint today. But when I went to goodmagazine.com, the, the front page article was called How We Can Save the Environment, Good by using bidets. And um, if you don't know, I know this is Family Sunday, so I didn't put a picture of a bidet up there. I mean, I guess it's good for the environment, but I didn't want to key off on that. Can we save the environment? Probably so. Ew. Uh, yeah, but there's also another website called Upworthy, and, and I really like Upworthy because it talks about all of the good that's going on in the world. And, and on the front page of Upworthy today, which is behind me, um, Labatt Brewing, I don't know if anybody has followed this, but Labatt Brewing this week decided that they are going to, for an indefinite amount of time, stop making beer and only make water. And the reason that they're doing this, and I didn't know this, I should because I'm married to a Canadian, is because there's, um, there's been over 500 wildfires in Canada this summer, and there are thousands and thousands of people in Canada, people just like us, except Canadian, that are um, living in refugee camps, and they're having to move to all these places and... Um, they don't have clean water. And so Labatt Brewing said, we're going to stop our business. We're going to stop making money and just can water. We have the ability to do that. And that's so cool. No matter your belief, so many people around the world are focused on making the world a better place. As Christians, and we talked about this last week, as Christians, God said that we are going to bless all nations. When we serve our neighborhood, when we go to another country, when we go to work and try to make the world better, when we try to bring the gospel to other people, we are fulfilling what God said thousands of years ago, that we will bring blessings to all the nations. But when we do this, and this is, the, this is my focus for all month, when we focus on the tasks, when we get so focused on the service or the trip or what I have to do, it's so easy to forget that God is already saving the world. God is already blessing the world. Now you can hear me, right? Last week, I shared that God is saving the world, not God might save the world if this church will just get its act together, not God is going to save the world when this and this and this happens. What I shared last week was that God is in the process of restoring the world right now. God has a plan, and the plan is to work through his people, which is so cool. But just because God has a plan doesn't mean that every Christian gets on board with that plan. God is going this direction. That means that we have to go in that direction too. If you want to believe in Jesus and you want to believe in God and, and do that with your life, you can do that and be saved and call God your God, but that doesn't mean that you're working with what he's working on. And so what I want to talk about today is how we as Christians that want to change the world, that want to bless the world, what we can do to be a part of God's restoring job on earth. Now, I know that a lot of us here are like that. I'm like that too. I, I look at my life and I say, I want to be a part of what God's doing. And so if I'm wanting to do that, if my goal is to do work in any field that has eternal significance, I want to look at somebody who has done that before. It's the same thing as when I was a teenager, I started playing guitar. And so I said, if I'm going to be a good guitar player, I'm going to start listening to Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton every single day. And I did because they're the best guitar players. Sorry, any Stevie Ray Vaughan fans, uh, Jimi Hendrix is better. If, oh, oh, so, oh I'm, 
did I just lose you for the whole sermon? I'm sorry. I, I love Stevie. I'm, his voodoo child is superior. I will give you that. I will give you that. Oh, I just lost two people in the audience. Just like that. Wow, what not to do when you're preaching. And I'm going to lose more people here. If you want to be a great quarterback, you've got to uh, study Peyton Manning. I'm sorry for other people. He's the best quarterback of our generation. And if I wanted to be a great quarterback, I would study everything Peyton Manning did. A lot of us here, if we want to be great leaders, we identify a leader in our field and we model our lives to be like they are. We say, they're a leader in this, so I'm going to lead just like that. If you want to change the world, if you want to be a part of what God is doing, there's one person to look at, and that's Jesus. Because even if you don't believe that he was the son of God, he has changed the world more than any other person in history. Time magazine, at the end of um, 1999, started making all of these lists. And it was person of the century, person of this, person of that. Looking over the first 2,000 years, not the first 2,000 years, but over the last 2,000 years, and they said, here is our person of the blank, or the most blank person. And they came up with a list of the most powerful and the most influential people of the last 2,000 years. And number one, from a completely worldly standpoint, was Jesus. Check out what they wrote about Jesus here. The memory of any stretch of years eventually resolves to a list of names. And one of the useful ways of recalling the past two millenniums is by listing the people who acquired great power. Muhammad, Catherine the Great, Marx, Gandhi, Hitler, Roosevelt, Stalin, and Mao quickly come to mind. There's no question that each of those figures changed the lives of millions and evoked responses from worship through hatred. It would require much exotic calculation, however, to deny that the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millenniums, but all human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. Not only is the prevalent system of denoting the years based on his birth, but a serious argument can be made that no one else's life has proved remotely as powerful and enduring as that of Jesus. So if you want to change the world, if you want to make the world a better place, if you want to be a part of God bringing the kingdom here on earth, let's look at the life of Jesus. Let's see what he did, because he did that more than anybody else. Last week I shared that one of my frustrations with Jesus, and it's okay to have that. One of my frustrations with Jesus is that Jesus allows us to be on the front lines of his ministry. Every complaint we have with the church is because of that, because Jesus allows messed up people, Jason's in the back, I'm pointing at him too, to lead the church. He allows messed up people to serve the entire world. Church, we are messed up, but that was Jesus's plan, to put us on the forefront of his ministry. And all Jesus said when he enabled his disciples to go. He said, go, baptize people, teach them what I've taught you, and make disciples. That's it. That is Jesus' strategy. But I wish he had done more. Like, if, if I could rewrite the Bible, which is a terrible thing to do, I, I would call it the New King Patrick version. <laughs> Here is the New King Patrick version of Matthew 28. Check this out. I've got it up there on the screen. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, read my textbook. It outlines everything you need to know to start a healthy, functioning church. And surely I'll be with you always, but you've got everything you need. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't give us a list of how to do everything. We're having VBS next week. There's nothing in the Bible that says, here's all the steps to have a successful VBS. It'd be really nice because then it'd be a lot less work. And everyone's like, yeah, I know what you're saying. But 
Jesus didn't tell us how to do a BBS. Jesus didn't tell us, here's how you structure a worship service. Jesus didn't outline a strategy. And that drives me crazy. Mike Pilavachi is Greek, and he's a preacher at a British church. It's called Soul Survivor. And I got to hear him speak about 10 years ago. And Mike is uh, 57 years old right now, which in my life group would merit you to be um, old, but not, as Tisha says, it's not super old. 57 is not super old, right? Okay. So he is 57, but I heard him speak 10 years ago when he was 47, sharing a story about the day that he turned 40. And so at his birthday party, somebody came up to him and said, it was Mike's friend, and he said, Mike, happy birthday. And Mike says, thank you. And his friend says, I need to give you a piece of advice. And Mike says, okay, give me your advice. And, and Mike's friend says, Mike, you're old. <laughs> and Mike says, okay, thank you. What, what do you have to say to me? And so Mike, Mike is a successful preacher. He preaches at a very large church. I've actually visited the church before. And um, the friend says, Mike, since you're old, your preaching days are numbered. Man, this is encouraging. And so he says, since your preaching days are numbered and you're successful, you need to make sure that you only preach to groups a thousand or bigger. That is strategic. And Mike says, he looks over to the audience when he shares a story, this big dramatic pause, and he goes, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't do that? It's so awesome. Mike, his friend said, I want you to be strategic. And Mike says, I don't want to be strategic I want to be like Jesus. Think about these facts. This is crazy to think about. I'm 30. I wrote in my notes that I'm 32, but I'm not 32. I am old enough to get my age wrong. <laughs> that is terrible. That's a typo. I've been in, ministry, in the public ministry, the professional ministry, since I was 20 years old. That makes my ministry four times longer than Jesus' ministry. Mike Pilavachi is 57. He's got some gray hair going on. Jesus most likely died before he had any gray hair. Albuquerque has a little bit more than 1 million people. The city that Grace and I lived in last year has 22 million people. Tokyo, Yokohama has 30 million people. Jesus never visited a city the size of Albuquerque. Jesus never met the most powerful man in the world when he was alive. Jesus never even went to Rome which was the most powerful city. Instead, Jesus enabled Paul to go there. There were fewer people on earth the time when Jesus came alive than are currently just in the United States today. Jesus changed the world with no car, no strategic planning team. He changed the world without Twitter, without funding drives, without a trendy logo. He changed the world without a computer, without a, a, a building. He changed the world with a headquarters in Jerusalem that was someone's a, apartment lot. That's how he changed the world. If you look at the public ministry of Jesus, it, compri it comprised only 10% of his time on earth. And the Gospels, which are what we have that are written about that 10%, they're only like the greatest hits of that 10%. Jesus spent most of his time on earth outside of the public eye. And Jesus spent most of his ministry time either with 12 guys or completely alone in prayer. The more I learned about Jesus, I learned that Jesus, he was not this big strategic leader. Instead, he was a guy who was alone a lot. Jesus knew, and this is the key for today, the way to change the world is to be close to the one who is already changing it. 
And if we're going to be used by God, whether it's in our church, our neighborhood, our workplace, whether it's somewhere abroad, that's how we change the world. That's how we save the world, is we get closer to God because he's already doing that. What if I told you right now, you have three years to accomplish the following. First of all, you're going to live your next three years as a central part of God's plan. But also during those three years, you are going to become the most powerful and influential person as noted by a magazine in the year 4015. And then you have to stay relevant for all of those years after you die in three years. What would you do? What would be your strategy to tackle those challenges? Let's look at what Jesus did. This is Luke chapter 5, verse 12. Once when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do choose, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one. Go, he said, and show yourself to the priest. And as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing, for a testimony to them. But now more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. But he would withdraw to, lonely, to des deserted places and pray. Some people, some translations have lonely or secluded places. This is one of my favorite stories because this is the exact opposite of what would happen if I just started zapping people and healing people right now. It, my, my old church in Seattle, we had a cerebral palsy ministry, and there would be people lining the aisles in wheelchairs. It was so cool. And can you imagine if we had that today, and I just touched somebody, and they started walking or, or tap dancing? I don't think my natural inclination would be to say, all right, you're healed, and then just walk back here and leave. I don't think that's what would happen. You guys would be so excited, you wouldn't let me leave. Everybody would say, oh, Patrick, I have a cold. You're healed. Patrick, this person has a demon. I'm healed. I become a celebrity. And then I say, guys, let's go to the hospital and heal all of those people too. That is not what Jesus did. Jesus says, as soon as you're healed, get out of here and give God the glory for this. And then it says, Jesus will withdraw to lonely places and pray. That's not my strategy, but it's Jesus's. Jesus is alone a lot. He's alone in prayer before he calls the 12 disciples. He was alone before doing his biggest public miracle, which was feeding 5,000 people. He was alone before he calmed the sea. He was alone before teaching the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus, as we all know this one, he was alone in prayer right before he was captured and then sentenced to die. Jesus' strategy is not what we choose, and if we're honest, it's not how the global church operates today. It's so counterintuitive, but it worked. When I lived in Austin, my friend Wade and I, we, we were planting a church. And when you're planting a church, you, you get focused on strategy. Who are we going to reach out to? Where are we going to have our services? What am I going to do? My biggest thing was when I was new to Austin, I had no friends. I, didn't, I moved there for the church. And so I was so stressed out because I had to meet friends to invite them to church. And so I started reading all of these strategic ministry books. And so I read this one book by a successful, awesome preacher, and he said, here's the only way to start a church. So I read it, and I said, that's, that's fantastic. I'm ready to do, this, to do this. Then I read another book the next day that said, don't listen to this guy. Here's how I started my church. Only do this. And then I realized, like, 
All of these guys were doing complete different things, and it worked. And so on, on one hand, every day I woke up thinking, God, I want to plant your church. What is my strategy? And then at the same time, I'm reading my Bible and going, this is not what Jesus was concerned with at all. So I had strategic pastors on one hand and unstrategic Jesus on the other. So what I started to do was I started to give, my permission, give myself permission to seek God first. I said, if God is going to grow this church, it's gonna, one of the things that's going to happen is God is going to lead me to other people, and I want to be prepared when God leads me to those people. So it took some pressure off me, and it should take some pressure on us. If our church is going to grow, both the church here and the church globally, it's not because we are amazing people. If, if people come to church because we are amazing, we're winning people over to ourselves, not to God. So I said, every Tuesday night, I'm going to stop worrying about my church, and I'm going to do one of my favorite things in the world, and that is go to Junior's Ice House and go do trivia. Now, anybody here who knows me knows that I love doing trivia, and here it was great because after joining the church for like two weeks, I had enough friends to make a team. I met Tom and Will and Natalie, and, and, and I had a wife that knew something about Beyonce, and so I could get all of those questions correct. And Canada. Yeah, that too. And so here I had enough friends to have a successful trivia team. And we were successful. We won quite often. We were, not going to lie, we were pretty good. But at juniors, I had one friend. And I didn't know anybody else because I was brand new to the city. So I said, hey, Isaac, I don't really know you, but let's go do trivia. So we go and do trivia. And um, I'm not focused on being strategic. I'm not focused on meeting people. I just want to relax. I just want to have a good time. So Isaac and I, I, I am proud to say, just as a team of two people, and really it was just me because Isaac was just there for the, for the french fries. Um, as a team of two people, we placed third in the whole, in the whole, uh, in the whole restaurant. And so I was very happy, and as, as we announced that we got third, the, the, the guy announces the first place team's score, and I find out we got destroyed. It's not like we lost by like three or four points. I think we lost by like 20 or 25, which when it's like a 50-question test, uh, yeah, that's not a good way to lose. And so I'm like, man, Isaac, we need, we need more friends. And Isaac's like, yeah, we do. I'm hanging out with you on a Tuesday night. <laughs> so, so as we get up, we're walking out the door, and this guy grabs me on the shoulder and turns me around. And, and he's very loud. He's obviously intoxicated. And he says, hey, my name's Mark. I just got second place, and you just got third place. How about we team up next week and, and that first place team, how about we go and kick there? And he was very intoxicated. Did I mention that? Uh, he, he was an interesting guy. And so I said, absolutely, because I want to win trip. I want to invite this guy to church someday. That's what I was thinking. I, wasn't th I was thinking about trivia. I'm not going to lie. I wanted to win the next week. I was not thinking about church at that moment. Because that whole time, I said, if God is going to grow the church, if God is going to bring me to people, I want it to be because I'm close with God not because I'm doing anything. So eventually, we teamed up, and some of Mark's friends, we got together, and, and I got together with Isaac, and, and we joined a team, and we won a lot. We started winning so much that we actually, after winning seven weeks in a row, we retired because we were so good. But something even better than that happened. Mark and I started hanging out a lot, and he became my closest friend in Austin. And um, one night, I was praying for him, and I said, God, if Mark ever comes to church, 
if Mark ever reads the Bible, if I ever see him pray one time, I will believe that anybody in the world can. He was that kind of guy. I share it with the students a lot because he, he was kind of like my Saul. I said, if, if, Saul, if Saul ever became a Christian, we knew God was up to something. And, and with Mark, if he ever came to church, I knew God was doing amazing things. And so one night, I'm out with some friends. This is Saturday night, and I get a text, and it's from Mark. And Mark says, hey, are you going to church tomorrow? And I say, probably. And then he texts back, and he says, well, can I go with you? And, and I'm thinking, this is Mark. This is the guy who has told me the most horribly sinful stories of all time. This is the guy I met drunk in a bar. He was drunk in the bar. Remember that lesson about context? Yeah, context is everything. This is the guy that I could not share the stories because we have, because I don't want to share them with anybody. And he texts me on a Saturday night. It's like one in the morning. Will you take me to church? And so I looked at my phone. I said, sure. But what I really wanted to say was, absolutely, I'll take you to church. Where we go, I will pick you up early and buy you breakfast tacos. But I just said, sure, so I didn't scare him. So... After that, I got to find out that for two years before I ever met him at, at the bar, God had been doing things in his life. God had to use some really bad things to show him that the way he was living was not right. God had also used his family to say, you need something bigger in your life. Eventually, I got to host a Bible study at his house. Eventually, we started going to church every single Sunday together. I ended up... Um, marrying him and his wife last year. He was the best man at my wedding. And all of this occurred because I gave myself permission to seek God first. I said, I'm going to make my spiritual life my number one priority and see what happens because I seek God first. So that's the point for today. If you want to be in what God is involved in what God is doing, all you have to do is seek God first. There's no strategy. There's no trick. That's all you have to do. And this is exactly what Jesus said the night before he was captured. After the Last Supper, Jesus said, guys, let's get up, let's leave the upper room, and we're going to go for a walk. And I researched this walk that he was doing, and it's not a very long walk. It's in the, where, what they call the city of David, which is the eastern suburb of Jerusalem. And they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, so they were going uphill. And this night, they had just finished celebrating the Passover. And when I learned about the Passover, it's most likely, if they were celebrating it the way that scholars believe they were, that the disciples all had had multiple glasses of wine that night. And as they're walking through, through the, through the um, suburb, it's a very good possibility also that there were um, places that they were walking past that were growing grapes for wine. It's a huge part of the Israeli economy. And so they're walking, that their mouths still taste like wine, their, their teeth are probably that color of purple that your teeth get when you drink red wine, and they're walking past vineyards. And then Jesus lays down this awesome metaphor that all of us are familiar with today. This is John chapter 15, verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Remember, they're walking past vineyards at this point. Their mouths taste like wine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, 
You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Jesus tells his disciples, right before he's about to get taken away from them, remain in my presence. Even though Jesus is leaving, he is telling them it's possible to stay with him. And he says that if they do, good things, which he calls fruit, will happen. Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. Think about wine. Think about grapes. Think about fruit. I had some awesome cherries that, uh, that David, you grew. They were delicious, and I couldn't stop eating them. And, and this would be the exact same thing. If a branch is growing to grow fruit, it does nothing but stay connected to the vine. The vine is the reason that fruit grows. It has very little to do with the branch. The branch did nothing but just sit there and stay connected. And what Jesus is saying is with spiritual fruit, it grows based on one thing, whether or not his followers remain in him. It doesn't, he doesn't say anything about planning, vision, strategy. He doesn't say you must be this kind of person or this type of leader. He says spiritual fruit grows because you stay connected to me. He also says that branches don't bear fruit on their own. So when we try to take things on our own hands, we're not being a part of what Jesus is trying to do. When we put strategy first, when we put ministry first, when we put doing before praying, we're, do, we're going against the, one of the last things that Jesus ever said. Now, it's good to plan. It's good to have strategy. But if we are doing it in a time of our life where we're not close to God, we're skipping the most important part. So if you want to be close to what God is doing, be close to him. Now, there's lots of disagreement about what fruit is here. Some people think that, that the fruit is, is a conversion, that if you stay close to God, you will know that you're saved because there will be a conversion in your life. Other people think that it's charismatic gifts. Other people think it's the, the fruits of the Spirit that they talk about later on in the Bible. Well, I am very excited to say that I have the 100% correct answer, and I'm going to give it to you guys right now. Anybody who disagrees with me is wrong. What is fruit? Fruit is the natural result of what happens when a branch is connected to the vine, which is a total cop-out answer, but it's totally true. And metaphorically speaking, spiritual fruit is the natural result of a follower staying connected to Jesus. So when you seek God first, spiritual things happen. And whatever those spiritual things are, that is fruit. So we don't need to make a list of this is fruit. Oh, no, 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 this is fruit because you haven't experienced this, but I have. No, fruit is what happens when a branch, when we stay connected to Jesus. Good things will happen, spiritual things will happen, and those are all fruit. It's the response, it's the result of remaining in God's presence. And I see this all the time in Jesus's ministry. He gave more and more and more time to God and he became more and more effective. And when I look at my life in a much smaller sense, I see the exact same thing. And I'll be honest here. In the seasons of my life where I have prioritized God, really good things have happened with eternal significance. And, and in the seasons of my life where I have said, I'm going to do things on my own or I don't need God, those are the times that there hasn't been spiritual fruit. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Sorry for my microphone freaking out. So... If Jesus followed our definition of strategy, 
he would have done things completely different. He wouldn't have been born as a baby because a baby isn't going to accomplish all that. Jesus would have been born at 30 years old and he would have been born in a track suit. And he would have been running around from town to town to town, zapping people, killing demons, healing people, and saying, oh, God loves you, peace and kingdom of God here. I'm going to the next city. And he would have done that everywhere around the world. And he would have stopped as soon as he died because you can't minister like that for a very long time. But instead, he focused on prayer and he focused on the 12 people closest to him in life. And the result, he changed the world. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. When I first started studying this, when I started looking at God's redemptive plan for the world, I read this and I had a weird thought come to my head that at first I thought, oh, that can't be true. That, that's not Christian. We can't say that about Jesus. But the more I read the Bible, this question kept on plaguing me. And here's my question. What if Jesus changed the world because he was so close to God? What if Jesus' ability to preach, to teach, to perform miracles was not just because he was God, but because he was a human who knew how to live close to God? What if we credit God, Jesus' godliness a lot more than we should, and we forget the fact that Jesus showed us the best way to live on earth? What if Jesus was the most powerful and influential man because he spent so much time with God? I hate what this means. I don't like it because what that means is that we are all capable of doing so much more. What if God is wanting to reach out in our neighborhood and we're not ready so God works through somebody else? God's will is going to happen. God will change our country. God will change our neighborhoods. He's going to bless them. But what if we're not spiritually mature enough to be used in the ways that he's wanting to move? What if God is wanting to bring the gospel to your workplace and you're not ready? On the other hand, what if you are ready? What if God is going to move somewhere and you are ready and he gets to use you? You get on board with his plan. You say, God, I'm putting you first and I'm going to see what happens because I have no idea, but you can lead people into my path. That is awesome and that is exciting. It's also really challenging. What we have to do is put God first and see where he takes us. Because he's going places. He's moving. He's restoring the world. And we can get on board with that. Great things will happen. Fruit will grow as long as we remain in him and keep his words in our heart. There's no trick. There's no strategy. There's no, I'm sorry, there's no big aha moment for the sermon today. The only thing I want to leave us with today is that God is using the people who are closest to him. And if you are moving closer to him, God is going to blow your mind with how much he is doing. And if you're, you're not putting him first, I don't want to say that God's not going to use you. I don't want to say that because I don't want to draw rules about what God does. That's not what I'm here for. But if you do want to be used by God, why wouldn't you put him first? We can put him first with our time. We can put him first with what we think about, with what we put into our lives. There are so many ways to put God first, and when you do, spiritual fruit will grow. Let's all stand up. We're going to have a time of prayer right now, and if you want to come forward to pray with one of the shepherds, you can say, I haven't been putting God first, but I want to. You can also pray that with the people next to you. If you want to say, 
I feel like God is calling me to you. God has put you in my path. That is an awesome thing as well. So we're going to have a time of prayer. And if you want to pray, you can come, to, come forward or you can pray with the people next to us. Uh, let me close this in prayer before we start that. God, I thank you that you are moving, you are doing things, you are changing the world. And I thank you that we get to be a huge part of that. I pray for all of us, God, that we will accept the challenge to put you first. I pray that the sacrifices that will be, that we'll have to do to make that, that we can accept those sacrifices, that we will stay up later, wake up earlier, take extra time off of our lunch, whatever we have to do to put you first. And God, I thank you that there's such an awesome reward behind that, that we get to be closer to you and that you will use us. Right now, God, I just pray for all of us that you will be in our hearts and we will take that challenge. We love you, God, and we pray that in your name. Amen.